Okay, so last week we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as we were thinking about worship, and we we're talking about worship in the church. And we prefaced our lesson last week. Uh, we prefaced our, our lesson last week by saying that uh, there's not a whole lot in the New Testament that describes for us how the early church worshipped. But one of the passages that does give us a picture is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the context that Paul is writing in is one in which he is talking about conflicts that existed over spiritual gifts. And there were some in the church there that evidently had the ability to prophesy. There are some in the church there that evidently had uh, the ability to speak in languages they had never studied before. And so Paul is, is saying, look, it doesn't really matter what your skill is, what your talent is that God has given you. You need to use it for the building up of the church. In the course of that discussion, he's talking about what they do in the worship service. And so that's where we were uh, last week. Uh, and we want to finish up this discussion today. And so as a way of reminder, look again at chapter 14 and verse 26. Paul says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. And so as he writes to them, he says, look, there's different people in the church there that have these different things that they're wanting to do in the worship assembly. And he says, whatever you do, it needs to be done for the purpose of building the church. And we looked at that word edification last week and you know back in the 80s you know that there was the the fad to talk about the edifying church and that was basically saying everyone needs to go out charged up energized and there's certainly nothing wrong with that but really the word edification means to build and so it's the idea of building up and that could be teaching that could be e equipping but you're building the church you're building those who are present and then Paul talks some more about some different things, about the order of worship and that sort of thing. And that's kind of where we left off. Um, we left off looking at verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, that they are subject to themselves, or to subject, subject themselves, just as the Lord also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And so a lot of people have taken that many different ways uh, over, over the years. But I think based on the context, uh, and many commentators and scholars take this position, that probably what you had going on there in the church of Corinth, you had a chaotic scene. Because you had people that were prophesying and evidently disrupting things. You had people that were speaking in tongues and evidently disrupting things. Because Paul has gone from, from verse 26 to this point talking about go one by one, uh, don't interrupt, you know, basic things that you and I would consider to be how you conduct yourselves in a, in a, in a public assembly. You don't interrupt the speaker, you don't, you know, uh, cause chaos and that sort of thing. And he's talking about those things with prophecy and speaking in tongues and, and teaching and reading a psalm and all of that. And so when you get down to the idea of the women, there are some who suggest that maybe uh, in that culture, in that setting at that time, 
uh, that it was customary for a woman, if she didn't understand something that was being said, to maybe blurt something out loud or maybe interrupt the service and ask her husband, can you tell me more about that? Not just in the church setting, but in, in other settings as well. And that perhaps what Paul is saying is instead of just blurting things out, what does that mean? That doesn't make sense or, or whatever. Uh, explain that to me. He's saying have those questions at home. So, you know, that is a difficult passage. Uh, I've known women over the years who felt like they could not answer a question in Bible class because I was speaking in church. Okay? Uh, I don't think most women have that view now. Uh, but, man, probably back in the 50s and 60s and even in the 70s, there were women they certainly were never going to talk because that's how they, how they perceive that. So anyone here with that recollection from your growing up? What's that? Okay. That's right. Just a child. Just a child. That's right. But I do remember that it was got to be taboo for a woman to speak up at all. We never spoke out much, even whenever we were in church and had had authority. And that sat down in that little child that was very outside. Absolutely. It's a different world. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I've, I've taught many Bible classes in different, different places, and I've encountered many, many women. Usually they are senior women, senior ladies, who they're not going to make a comment in Bible class because of this passage. Now, there is another passage, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And, uh, you know, so the question there is, is that talking about worship or is that talking about in the church in general? Okay. Uh, but the key there is the idea of teaching or exercising authority over. The Greek word for authority, authentio, means to exercise, uh, just like the American tran Standard translates it, to exercise authority. Okay. So, Zali, you look like you're thinking pretty good there. Do you, had, did you have a comment? Right, right. So, you know, so yeah, I mean, if you're in a teaching setting and the Bible class teacher is asking questions, uh, you know, then it becomes appropriate to, to speak out. And yes, I think what you're saying is, is true. When you're in a worship assembly, you don't expect that, you know. Whether you're a woman or a man. Right, you right. Know, Absolutely. not part of the worship service, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be awkward and weird, and that's something we know is outside the norms of, of protocol. So, so very good. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, you know, that's always the interesting question because are they a man? Okay, well, spiritually they've been, they've been baptized, you know. Right, so if the Bible class teacher happens to be the mom, does that mean she never teaches her son at home anymore because they're both in the church, you know? And, uh, you know, so it's a, it's a difficult question probably because there are some that would really just take that the wrong way. So I've always taken the approach, it's better to say women don't teach after the fifth grade just to satisfy those who, for them, it's a conscientious issue or a conscience issue. Um, you know, I don't know. Obviously, I'm not God, so I can't say how he sees that. <laughs> you know, if he's... if he's, Yeah, right. Well, you know, and what's interesting is, you know, if you really wanted to go back and dig into that, you know, in Old Testament times, you know, whenever they were to count the men, there was they were men that were military age, 20 years of age and up. And so, y you know, is that what defines a man? You're 20 years of age. Now, don't tell Drew, <laughs> right? Did, did he just have his 21st birthday? Okay, he, January he turned 20. Okay. You know, that's right. Some of us, we're told, are still growing up, right? <laughs> you know, but you know, in the Old Testament, that seems to be the case. You know, and I'm not, you know, I've not studied it in terms of the Greco-Roman tradition of the first century to see when a man was considered a man at that at that time. Uh, you know, in our culture, you know, we define it as 18. When you're 18, you can vote, and you can go to war and kill people, right? And you can serve on a jury. So our, our society says you're 18, you're an adult now. You know, so, I, you know, I don't know. It'd be difficult. And, and if, if you said it was 18, then you'd have opened the door to youth ministry and that sort of thing. And then I personally start to feel a little uncomfortable, you know. Uh, but there are some churches, you know, that they'll have female youth ministers, you know, so. But does it say specifically, so we say it's just that we do it in the house that we say the best job on the Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, that's why for me, you know, I think, you know, after fifth grade, you know, there are people that feel strongly if that person is old enough to be baptized or old enough spiritually to be a man, or one young woman, therefore, we need to follow this, this standard in, in Timothy. Uh, you know, and I'll let, leave that to God to decide whether or not, you know, that's what he had in mind or not. <laughs> you know, so, uh, but that's a good point. Okay, so let's finish up this section by looking at, uh, at verse 37 through 40. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I wrote to you are the Lord's commandment. So what Paul's saying here is all this stuff I've been saying in these chapters about worship, this isn't just coming from me. This is the Lord's command. This is what God wants. This isn't my opinion or my suggestions. These are things that I've been given from God to teach. Verse 38, but if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now that's interesting. By whom is he not recognized? 
if he's someone that God has used to prophesy? Is it possible for God not to recognize the prophecy of a prophet? What do you think, Jay? You're nodding your head ever so slightly. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, the Old Testament is really interesting because you have the Old Testament is full of examples of people that were prophets, that were false prophets. You know, you had the, the story when Ahaz, uh, I believe it is, first becomes king. There's an old man that's a prophet. He doesn't say what his name is, but he's sent to go and preach against Ahaz. And I think it's Ahaz. No, Jeroboam. He's supposed to go and, and speak the, to Jeroboam. And God tells him, when you come back, come back a different way. And there's another prophet who's also described as an old prophet who has two sons. And that old prophet says, did someone go speak to Jeroboam? Tell him to become the heir. And he sends his two sons to go get the, the other prophet that God had sent. And the prophet says to the two sons, look, God told me very specifically not to go back that same way. He told me not to go into, uh, in, into uh, to Israel. I'm going back this other way. And the sons come and report that, and the dad says, no, go back and tell him that I had a prophecy from God that he's supposed to come and eat here. And so the prophet relinquishes, and he comes, and he eats. And as he's eating, you know, the other prophet, you know, prophesies, because you've done this, you're going to die this very night. Sure enough, you know, that, that happens. So you have all these examples. Jay's right. Just because someone is a prophet doesn't mean that they're always prophesying the truth. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're always following God's will. And so here in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, you know, I wonder if that's what Paul means, if that's what God, that God means, that if you don't follow my commandments, you're not recognized by God. Or the other possibility is, what Paul's saying is, if you don't follow the commandments of God, you're not going to be recognized by the church. You know, either either possibility is valid. And either either possibility to me makes sense. So, you know, and one other thing we didn't really touch on last week that's interesting to me is uh, verse 31. For we, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. What Paul is saying is you go one by one because even as you're receiving a prophecy uh, through the spirits that God has sent to you, they're still subject to you. You can still tell, you know, control that spirit. Very interesting to me. 
you know, Paul, tell me more about that because that's interesting to me. How does that work? You know, the, Peter talks about the fact that the, that the prophets did not speak on their own accord but were moved by the Spirit of God. How does inspiration work? We don't really know a whole lot. And so you had guys in the New Testament church, even women, occasionally, that you see in the book of Acts, uh, Anna the prophet, prophetess, uh, you know, the, the, the daughters of the, of the prophet when Paul comes back, is it Agabus, Agabus' daughters, uh, as, as he's coming back from his missionary journey, you know, he had, he had daughters that were, that were prophetesses, okay? And so you had people in the first century that had the God-given... Uh, miraculous ability to prophesy and um, apparently they had some control over how they delivered that message. When they delivered that message, Paul is saying, go one by one. Okay? So let's finish up. Look at verse 40. He says, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So when we think about our worship services today, and we look at the pattern of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're not told the precise pattern that they went in. You know, three songs in a prayer? doesn't say that. He says one has a teaching, or each one is what he says, has a teaching, has a, a psalm, has a revelation, has a tongue. So apparently when they gathered together for the worship service, they were eating the Lord's Supper, chapter 11. They were to collect the contribution, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He says, do that as you gather together on the first day of the week. And also then from chapter 14, we see that they evidently uh, had teaching. Sometimes that teaching came in the form of a message from a prophet. Sometimes that teaching came in the form of someone who had the uh, miraculous ability to speak in a language they had not studied. And somebody else, evidently, to interpret that message. Was the psalm reading a psalm, as was common in the synagogue, or was it leading a song from the book of Psalms? Okay, Either way is valid. Either way is possible. Earlier in chapter 14, he talks about when you gather together, when you, when you pray, when you sing, don't do it in a tongue because you're not edifying the person next to you if there's no one there to interpret. Okay, And so you had singing, you had teaching, you evidently had praying. All of the things that you see us doing in our worship service, that's what they did. This is why we do those things. They didn't do it because we do it. We do it because they did it. And they did it, Paul says, in an orderly fashion, or they were supposed to do it in an orderly fashion. Okay. There's some other things in this chapter that we didn't really get to last week. Uh, again, the idea of going one by one. I alluded to the fact that if there was someone who spoke in a tongue, they had to have an interpreter. Uh, that's not all that important for us today. Uh, I don't believe that God still uses the ability to miraculous, miraculously speak in a language we've never learned. But it's important for us from the standpoint that there are some religious groups that believe that they can practice speaking in tongues. In fact, there's one religious group that says you're not really baptized by the Holy Spirit unless you, are, you have the ability to speak in tongues. And the tongues aren't foreign languages. They're 
They would say angelic tongues. But it seems clear by the way that the word is used in the New Testament that they were other languages. Uh, evidenced even in this context, because if you back up in the chapter, Paul talks about the fact if a barbarian is not just a barbarian, which is what they called the Germans, because their language to them sounded like barber. You know, it just sounded it was nonsense. You think about German, die heißen Sie. You know, what is your name? You know, die heißen Sie. You know, wie uh, Gates, how are you today? You know, I mean, that's if you're an Italian, you know, that's what that sounds like to you, you know. Uh, and so, you know, he says, if you're speaking in that tongue and there's not one of those guys here, everyone else is going to think you're nuts, you know. Uh, if that person is there and they hear a message, then it's just fine, okay. And so the context itself tells us that it was them speaking the language. You go back to Acts chapter 2. They all heard them in their own language as they spoke in tongues. And the same word is used, glossasia. Uh, Okay, think of your glossary in the back of your old textbooks. You know, that's what it means. But be that as it may, as we look at this, even here in the context of chapter 14, uh, Paul says uh, there must be one who, who interprets. Again, verse 27 and 28, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. So in a single worship service, Paul says you should only have three guys at the most to bring you a message in a different language. And each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So even in the first century, chapter 12 tells us not everyone had the gift to speak in tongues. Is it a test that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? No. It's Paul's talking to Christians. And he says not everyone has that ability. Number two, in the worship assembly, there had to be someone that interpreted the tongue, the language, and if there's no one present that can do that, it doesn't, it shouldn't be done in the church. If there is an interpreter, you need to limit the number of people that are doing it to three. And Paul says, he concludes the chapter again in verse 40 by saying, all things must be done properly and in an orderly fashion. I can remember as a kid, my mom, who I love and respect, being upset when we visited a church. I can't remember if we were out of town or what was going on, but we were visiting a church, and she thought it was really distasteful that they had an order of worship printed in their bulletin. Okay, uh, I'm not sure why she felt like that. Uh, you know, I was probably about Jack's age at the time. You know, so it's not like we had a lengthy, deep discussion about it. I just remember her being upset about it. There may be folks that feel that way today and, and maybe I can see folks feeling that way because sometimes it feels like we're trying to push the worship service we've got to get done in this time frame uh, we've got to make sure that everything fits into its place and we can be so wound up about those things that yeah then we're m missing the purpose of worship but Paul does tell the Corinthian church we need to do worship in a proper way in an orderly fashion we're not trying to run our worship service as a business meeting you know things have to be done in this way uh, but it does need to be done properly and orderly. And so that's why when we have our worship service, you know, it's not like Jay comes in and just randomly selects songs, you know, and, you know, Linda says, Jay, 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 stop, stop, stop. This is my favorite song. We haven't sung it in three years. Can we sing it, please? You know, uh, and we have a chaotic moment. That's not what we do. 
Okay, so Jay thinks about his song service, and he puts his songs together, and we put it on the PowerPoint so that everyone can see the words, and there's a reason for that. We all want to be able to engage in worship. We all want it to be meaningful. I've been doing a lot of talking. Anyone have any questions or comments? Right, absolutely. So absolutely. Absolutely, that, that, that very well could be. And the other side of it is there are some denominational groups that their mm-hmm. denomination headquarters puts out a week by week order of service within the, church? within the denomination, yes. And, you know, it could be knowing my mom that she, that's, what she, that's what her mind went to, you know. But maybe I should call her sometime and I can mention it to her, but. My guess is she probably doesn't remember that event. So anyway. Absolutely, yeah. You're such a rebel, Jay. You're such a rebel. You troublemaker. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, and, that, and that's true. And Jay reminds me. You know, when I was at when I was at Freed Hardeman, uh, they would send us out, and we would field, do fill-in preaching for some of the small congregations around where the school was. And sometimes that radius got fairly large, but. Uh, I'd been to enough places that, you know, there were some variations in how folks did things. And I was at one church, and uh, the guy that was kind of showing me what their procedures were, I asked him, I said, do you do the sermon before or after the Lord's Supper? And he just kind of looked at me like he'd never been asked that question before. You know, those liberals at Freed Hardman, you know, they they uh, they don't know when we do our, our sermon. You know, so Jay is right. Sometimes we can... Take that to an extreme. My personal feeling about orders mm-hmm. and how we do things, we should change it up. Mm. We should, you know, take worship hours out to an hour for Lord's Supper before the congregation, you know, or yeah. after the service. And then we should have, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, just, it, it, doesn't, it just kind of changes. I know you did one, ser- uh, one sermon one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For that, but it 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 doesn't. There's no rule. It's like everyone thinks it has to be this way. Right. You know, two songs and this, and then you only do. Yeah. That's a really good point. Absolutely. Yeah, it keeps things fresh in our minds sometimes, you know. And it's sad because I don't know that it's sad, but 
you know, in a church, you have so many different tastes. You have so many different points of view, you know, that any time you change things up, you know, someone is going to be upset. And so sometimes we get so bent out of shape where we get so concerned about, you know, the folks that are going to get upset that sometimes we avoid doing good things. And, uh, you know, so the leadership of a church really has to weigh those things. And um, sometimes it's, it's to the detriment. Sometimes we miss teaching opportunities because really what needs to happen in a situation like that is the elders of the church need to sit down with that individual and say, look, we understand that you're upset about this. Uh, we understand this is outside your comfort zone. Here's why we did this. Here's the scriptural basis for why we do that. And, uh, you know, sometimes elderships are more about throwing out or putting out the fires than they are teaching. And uh, that's why, to me, when I look at the qualifications of elders, you know, the first two things we talk about, has he been married one time, and are, does he have multiple kids, and are they Christians? And we forget what Paul tells to Titus. He needs to be able to teach, to refute those who contradict sound doctrine, and be able to teach. And it's not just the issue of does he get up every once in a while and go through the curriculum, you know, the curriculum book, but I believe it's, it's he, need, he needs to know scripture so well that he has demonstrated an ability to teach people, you know, and uh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> a- absolutely. And, uh, you know, you're always going to have people that get upset about different things and for different different little things like that and sometimes we get so worried about that that we fail to do the right thing if that makes any sense so Zali have anything to add to that in your years of experience And I think we get that from what Paul says to Timothy. You know, a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. And, you know, we need, sometimes we need to stop and think about what that is. You know, we understand the teaching part. Sometimes we don't understand the exercise of authority part, you know. And uh, there are some folks that want to push that, you know. And there's some people that probably take that, you know, a little too far. You know, the women leaning on at the table is an interesting interesting thing because I've heard missionaries to Japan who have said in Japan that's a subservient thing and so they look at it as exactly the opposite you know and so I've, I've been asked that question over the years should, should they do it or not well in Japan that's the way they see it in our culture it's not and until there are people that don't see it as being a form of authority, you ought not do it. You know, just for, you know, so, anyway, but go ahead. Yeah, that, that's where there is some. Mm-hmm. 
if you're telling somebody how to do something, you know, that's a that's definitely authority over or you know over something. Uh, if you if you say this person's going to be responsible for organizing this activity and and uh, as a part of the church, I think that for me that's that's authority. You know, um, there are some, you know, as Zali has indicated, that see the passing of the trays if they stand at the end of the pew that that to them is a, is a form of authority. They have authority, you know. And, uh, you know, and so if that's the case, that there are people that feel that way, then for conscience sake, we need to avoid that. And I think where we are in our culture right now, that's definitely the case. There's definitely some that don't. Now, getting up and doing the speaking part, no, that that's definitely falls within the idea of teaching. Uh, the song leading, you know, the song leading and the prayers, Think about what you're saying. Leading prayers, leading song. You know, yeah, I'm deciding which songs we sing. I'm exercising authority over which songs we sing. I'm exercising authority over what we are going to pray for and how we're going to pray for it. You know. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, it's like, uh, and there are some women that have great talents, and they you can use those talents, and they're not in authority. Like Susan, who is an accountant, does oversight work for a government agency. You know, she wants to do, she's able to do the books. Man, let her go at it. Is she deciding how we're spending our money? No. As a church, No. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so that to me is a difference. Now, there's some folks that, you know, would be, be bothered by that. And so, to answer your question, Tommy, I think when, you, when you're in a position where you're making decisions, when you're supervising others, when you're leading others, to me, that's authority. I think that's what the word indicates, is uh, exercise authority in, in those senses. Supervising, leading, making decisions for. If it does, does that answer your question? Okay. All right. Okay, so that's, that's worship. I want to go back, and I want us to look at John chapter 4 as we continue to think about worship. Remember, as you turn over to John chapter 4, the context is Jesus has met this Samaritan woman at the well, and they're having a discussion about where the Messiah is going to come from, who is the Messiah, how are they going to know who the Messiah is. Uh, Jesus is getting to the point where he's going to say, I am the Messiah, in not so many words. But as you look in John chapter 4, 
Um, and you look, let me see here where we're at here. Am I in John 4? No, I'm in John 6. And you look down to John chapter 4 uh, and verse 24. Now we'll start in verse... Verse 20. The Samaritan woman asks Jesus a question. She says, Our fathers worshipped uh, in this mountain, and you people say uh, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So her question is about worship. Where are we supposed to worship? So the Samaritans uh, were those people that claimed to have a, a, a lineage, a connection with, with the Jews, but the Jews... Uh, rejected that, and so they kind of went off and followed their own Jewish worship. They believed that they were more accurately following the Old Testament than the Jews were. Okay, and so you had this animosity between these two groups. And she's asking, which place? Are we supposed to worship in Jerusalem or here in Sychar, where uh, Jacob established the well, uh, uh, the, the well and the altar where he originally worshipped God. Okay? And so look at Jesus' answer to her. Verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, so as Jesus is talking to the woman, uh, you know, she her question is, which physical place, which forms of worship in those physical places, those temples, are we to worship? And Jesus' answer to her is, neither one. Because an hour is coming, he says, as I'm talking to you, that hour is now here when the true worshipers of God are going to worship in any temple. But it's going to be a spiritual worship. It's going to be a worship in truth. And he says the reason for that is because God is a spirit and those that worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So when we think about last week and our discussion last week, when we're talking about Psalm 95, and he says, bow down with thankfulness. Uh, sing with joy in your heart. Have a spirit uh, of humility. I think it's important for us as we look at John chapter 4 to recognize that God is the object of our worship. Uh, a point was made last week that when you look at 1 Corinthians 14 as we were studying, there is an additional purpose in that worship, and that additional purpose in that worship is to build the church. So God, based on John chapter 4 is our object of worship. Our worship is directed towards him. But there's also this idea of a side to side, a brother to brother purpose in worship. And that is to build each other up. And so as we worship, we do both of those things. And we'll stop here because the bell rang. Uh, and we'll pick up with this next week. I appreciate the discussion. And uh, we had an interesting side discussion on the role of women in the church. Uh, if you have any questions about that, feel free to ask me. So uh, we can study more about that if someone has additional questions. Uh, thank you very much, and we'll get started with worship here in a few minutes.